passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. Well, good morning again, everyone. Uh, As we begin, I want to begin with a question uh, that I want you to ponder for a few moments. When you find yourself in a moment of silence, and some of you might be saying, well, what exactly does that look like? I've heard of silence. What is silence? But when you find yourself, whether it's while you're driving the car or taking a shower or on a morning run or you're drifting off to sleep at night, when you find yourselves in those moments of silence, what occupies your thoughts? Where does your mind run to? for rest, for enjoyment, for renewal. That's a discussion that our passage this morning addresses. And here in this passage, Paul gives us a target that we are to aim for when we are trying to focus our minds and to focus our hearts in those moments of quiet. In those moments where nothing is forcing us to pay attention to certain things, what do we draw our hearts toward? The last few weeks as we've been going through the book of Colossians, Paul has been reminding us time and time again in this book that Christ is central. That's why our sermon series is called All About Jesus. Jesus is central to every single aspect of our lives. And rather than running to the culture's advice for how you can find purpose, how you can find rest in your life, Paul here in the letter of Colossians tells the church in Colossae time and time again to turn their hearts to Christ. Because it is in Christ that we will find rest and purpose and meaning. And so as we open this morning's passage in Colossians chapter 3, we see the exact same thing as well. We're going to be looking at just the first four verses of Colossians 3. And these four verses are probably the most crucial in the letter of Colossae. And the reason they're so important for us is because they really serve as a bridge between the two parts of of this book. Colossians chapter 1 and chapter 2 are all about exaltation. They all talk about how big and great and beautiful and glorious Jesus is and what he has done for us. They exalt Jesus. Chapter 3 and chapter 4 focus on exhortation, on what we are called to do, on how we are called to live as Christians because of the exalted Christ. In fact, this is my favorite uh, passage in the book of Colossians because it, always, it reminds us that exaltation, what we are called to do as Christians, is always rooted in exaltation, in who God is. And our passage this morning looks at the key to Christian fruit, the, cre- the key to living out a, a Christian life, and it's found in our union with Christ. And so as we approach God's word, would you pray with me once more? 
Oh, sovereign, powerful, reigning Jesus. God, we rejoice at the chance to study your word. And so we ask that as we approach the commands of this morning's text, that we would do so with confidence. And that confidence would be found in what you have done for us. God, help us to live more fully into our union with Christ. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. If you have a Bible, I invite you to follow along. Uh, In Colossians chapter 3, we're going to be starting in verse 1. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on the things that are of earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. There's so much packed into these four verses. Let's just take them verse by verse. First, by looking at verse 1. And notice how verse 1 begins. Paul starts by saying, If you have been raised with Christ. Remember, Paul is writing to Christians. And because of this, it's probably better for us to think of this instead of a a question of if, but instead we should say, Since you have been raised with Christ. This isn't something that is uncertain for us. It's not an if question. It's not hypothetical. If you are a Christian, then you have been raised with Christ. This is an accomplished fact. Here, Paul reveals to us the key to this entire discussion, our union with Christ. It is our union with Christ that is the motivation and the foundation for our actions that are described in Colossians 3 and Colossians 4. It's almost as if Paul is saying, if you have been raised with Christ, and oh, by the way, you have because you have trusted in Christ, then this is what it means for your conduct. Everything that we see in Colossians 3 and Colossians 4 comes back to this phrase right here. If you have been raised with Christ, and you have, this is how you are to live and to act. Now, over the past few weeks, we've touched on our union with Christ as we've been going through this book. But just a reminder for us what it means to be united with Christ Colossians 1 verse 27 tells us that our union with Christ is the great mystery of the gospel. To them, God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. The astounding good news of the gospel is not just that God has come to save us, but through the Holy Spirit that Christ can come and will come and dwell within each of us, that we can be united with Christ. 
Christ's death is not just one of substitution, but it is also one of identification. That when we place our faith in Christ, that we are now identified with Christ, we are united with Him. It is our It is our union with Christ that is our motivation for spiritual growth. That's what Paul is getting at here in Colossians chapter 3. When Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, then seek the things that are above, he is saying that the key to your growth is your union with Christ. A few weeks ago, we read Galatians chapter 2, where Paul says the exact same thing. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. It's here where Paul is saying in the, in the face of competing claims... Remember, the, the church in Colossae, the, the culture was telling people where to look for meaning, where to look for salvation, for deeper spirituality, for satisfaction. Go somewhere else. And it's in the face of that, Paul reminds the church that it is here in Christ that you will find the key to meaning and significance and fruit in your life. Same thing is true for us today as well. Contrary to the cry of of the false religion of consumerism, which says salvation and satisfaction can be found in more stuff, contrary to the false religion of pleasure that says salvation and satisfaction can be found in more football and more television and more food and more and more and more, Contrary to the cry of politics today in the United States that says that salvation and satisfaction for our nation is found in the right political leader. Contrary to the cry of tolerance in our culture today that says salvation and satisfaction are frankly found wherever you want. So stop judging other people. The message of our union with Christ is to look to the risen Lord. To look to Jesus who is exalted to the right hand of God the Father. No wonder Paul trumpets how essential Christ is for growth in the implied command of Colossians chapter 2 verse 19. Remember, this is the implied command. He says this, Hold fast to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth from God. Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, if you've been reunited with Christ, not just in death to the old life, but also new birth into the new life, then seek the things that are above. The question, of course, is, what are the things that are above? Many throughout church history have misinterpreted the command of this verse. They have, verse they, have, they have sought abdication from earthly responsibilities in order for them to pursue more holy lives. I oftentimes think of Robert Pierce. 
a man who uh, founded World Vision and did a lot of good with his life, and yet he virtually abandoned his wife and children in order to accomplish the mission that God had given him. And to read some of the comments from his children about how he had abandoned them to focus on the more spiritual brings this verse to mind. This is not a command to neglect our responsibilities here and now. It is not, as D.L. Moody said, uh, to become someone who is so heavenly-minded that we are of no earthly good. Instead, it is a command, and remember the context of Colossians, this context where there are so many different competing cultural claims of how to find meaning and significance and growth to become a better person, to seek Christ's lordship to seek Christ's reign over all the earth, including our lives. Paul reminds the church that Christ is reigning right now. Christ is ruling right now at the right hand of the Father. No matter how crazy your life may seem, no matter, no matter how threatening the future may seem to you, Christ is seated at the right hand of God, reigning and ruling. And so as Christians, we are not to seek the things that are tied up in how the world operates, but instead we are to seek to live a life in light of Christ's exaltation, in light of the fact that Jesus reigns right now. I can't help but think of Jesus' command in Matthew chapter 6, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. The word seek here in Colossians 3 is a conscious, deliberate effort. It takes hard work to shake off the distractions. It takes hard work to shake off the other pursuits and to refocus your gaze upon Christ. To refocus your gaze upon His kingdom. It takes hard work to live out a life in this world that is not in line with the stream and the flow of culture, but instead one that is counter-cultural. But for those who are united with Christ in his resurrection, that is our calling, to seek the things above. Of course, To seek the things above can seem like an impossibly high charge. So how do we follow this command? The answer is found here in verse 2. After saying to seek the things above, Paul says this, Set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things that are on earth. Paul is explaining here how to seek the things that are above. In order for us to properly do that, we must first set our mind on the things above. The words set your mind here carry the weight of intense dwelling. In other words, Paul is is saying, let your thoughts dwell on these things. Essentially, think on them so much that your mind takes up residence on these things. 
We see this all the time around us. For the person who wants to go on vacation to Disney World, it doesn't do them a whole lot of good to seek out that vacation without first taking the time to set their mind and to think about how to accomplish it. For the person who desires to lose weight, it doesn't, take, uh, it doesn't do them much good to seek this noble goal without first setting their mind and thoughts upon how to accomplish it. For the high school senior who wants to get into a prestigious college, it doesn't do them much good to seek this goal without first setting their mind on how to accomplish it. And on and on and on we could go. The truth is the body naturally follows the heart and the mind. Wherever your heart and your mind dwell, that's where your body will go. Whether we realize it or not, the direction of our life, the trajectory of our life, what we seek with our lives is actually predetermined. And it's predetermined by what we dwell on, what we think about, what consumes our thoughts. That's why we began this morning by asking, where do your thoughts dwell when you have some silence and peace? Do they find rest in your holiday plans? Do they find rest in reliving your favorite movie or novel or television show? Do they find rest in your favorite sports team? Do they find rest in thoughts of a new house, a new car, a perfect spouse, or more? Where our thoughts dwell will determine the trajectory and the direction of our lives. And so, when Paul is writing here, when he says to set our minds on the things above, but to not set them on the things of earth, Paul is issuing another high calling. But what Paul is not saying is that it is wrong for us to get excited for time with family over Thanksgiving. Paul is not saying that it's wrong to get excited about a vacation that you've saved up for. Paul is not saying it is wrong for you to become excited about how your notoriously bad football team is suddenly one of the best teams in the nation. You can interpret that to refer to the Vikings or the Cyclones this year. As an Iowa fan and a Chiefs fan, doesn't apply to me either way. <laughs> He's not saying that we should reject everything that's unspiritual for us to focus on the things of heaven. Instead, what Paul is saying is for us that to reject this tendency of our culture to just ignore Christ, to ignore that Jesus reigns. Our culture has a tendency to ignore Jesus and virtually all that it does. And it is deadly for us to live in this blissful ignorance. It is deadly for us to live in ignorance of Christ's lordship over every thread of the tapestry of our existence. That's what Paul is condemning here when he says to set your mind on the things that are above, not on the things of earth. I heard a pastor describe this in a helpful way this past week. He was describing what it means to set your mind on, on things above or, or things of the earth and, and how that influences our lives in the here and now. 
And he, he drew attention to Numbers chapters 13 and 14. Many of us uh, are familiar with this story, even if we don't know exactly what's contained in, verse, in chapters 13 and 14. It is the story of Israel wandering in the wilderness. They have just escaped Egypt through the impre- incredible display of God's power in the crossing of the Red Sea. They have just seen God's power in the giving of the law to Moses at Mount Sinai. And here in Numbers 13 and 14, they stand at the edge of the land of Canaan. They're about to enter the land that God has promised to them, and so they send spies into the land to tell them what it is like. And the spies come back, and they bring a message of the land's incredible bounty and beauty. They say it is a land flowing with milk and honey. As a land filled with fruit to enjoy. In every sense, this land is an answer to our prayers. You probably remember what takes place next. Ten of the twelve spies say, it's a beautiful land. But there's a problem. The people of the land are powerful. And we will be slaughtered or enslaved if we enter the land. Only Joshua and Caleb say the people of the land are indeed powerful, but our God is more powerful still. I think in these two responses, we catch a glimpse of what it means to dwell on the things of earth and on the things above. The ten spies who said, if we go to Canaan, we will be slaughtered have their minds solely set on the things of earth. They have no category for the sovereign rule of God. They have no category for the promises of God. No thought is given to God's power in their immediate past. They only operate on the purely physical plane. And when they look at their might and strength as escaped slaves from Egypt... And they compare it to these established peoples living in the land. They cower with fear. This is in contrast to Joshua and Caleb whose minds dwell on the power and the reign and the rule of God. They see the exact same thing. They see the power of the people of the land and yet they respond in a completely different way because of their confidence in God, because of their confidence in His power and in His rule. Their focus on the things above didn't make them useless right here and right now. In fact, it made them more able to face the trials of the day. And so for us, how we live and how we set our minds will determine our ability to face the trials, the struggles, and even the joys of this life. There's just one question. How are we to do this practically? How are we able to dwell on Christ, to to focus our hearts and minds upon Him? A few thoughts for us this morning. First, this begins simply with a, a, just a short five-second prayer. Say, Lord, set my mind on the things above. Lord, set my mind on the things above. 
It's a simple prayer that can be said in just one breath. And as people who are prone to forget, we should say it as often as it comes to mind. We should say it throughout the day as a way to calibrate ourselves in the midst of the challenge of feeding your children or in the midst of a difficult client, in the midst of dealing with difficult students or in a meeting. Lord, set my mind on the things above. Set an alarm on your phone or on your watch or put sticky notes uh, wherever you go so that way you can remind yourselves just a five-second prayer. Lord, set my mind on the things above. Fill your life with reminders to continually turn your mind to dwell on Christ and on his rule. Next, another thing that we can do is to begin to think of the things of earth in relationship to the exalted Christ. The charge is not to to neglect the things of earth, the good gifts that God has given us, but instead to look at them in relationship to the reign of God. An easy way for us to do this is simply to thank God for the things that you enjoy. So enjoy your family, enjoy your vacation, enjoy your football season, enjoy your television show, enjoy your possessions, but do so in a way that is in relationship to the exalted Christ, not as a substitution to him. Blissful ignorance of Christ's reign in any area of your life does you no good. And so even as we pray that God would set our minds on the things above, We should also begin to look at all of life in relationship to Jesus. Third, take time to memorize passages like this one. Take time to store up Scripture in your heart, to turn your heart and your mind to Christ. Passages such as this one, Colossians 3, 1 through 4, Romans 12, 1 through 2, great places to start for turning our hearts and our minds to Christ. Paul gives us two commands in verses 1 and 2. Seek and set. In the next two verses, Paul returns to our motivation for doing so. He looks at our union with Christ. And it's in these verses, verse 3 and verse 4, Paul looks at, our, at the role of our union with Christ in our past as well as in our future. Take a look at verse 3. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. Paul looks to our past. For those of us who are Christians, he looks back to our conversions and says, in that moment, you died. And in your death to the old life, our lives are now inseparably connected to who Jesus is. In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul takes this even further and says that even now we are exalted in the heavenly places because of our union with Christ, because we identify with Christ. Paul describes our lives as hidden with Christ in God. There is nothing in this life that will ever harm you or prevail against you. John Chrysostom was widely considered to be the best preacher of the first few centuries of the church. He understood this. 
And there's a story of one of his conversations with the Roman emperor right before he was put to death. Now, when Chrysostom stood before the Roman Empire, the emperor, excuse me, the Roman emperor, he, he was threatened with banishment if he remained a Christian. Chrysostom replied, you cannot banish me, for the world is my father's house. You cannot banish me. The emperor replied, well, then I will kill you. Chrysostom said, no, you cannot, for my life is hid with Christ in God. So the emperor said, well, I'll take away all of your possessions, all of your treasures. Chrysostom said, no, you you can't do that either. For the first thing, I have nothing in this world that you know about, for my treasure is in heaven and my heart is there. So the emperor said, well, I'll drive you from everyone that you know. I'll I'll take away all of your friends. You will have no one to commune with. Chrysostom replied, oh, you cannot. I have a friend in heaven from whom you shall not separate me. For I have died, and there is nothing that you can do to hurt me. Reminds me of of Paul's words in Romans chapter 8. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? For Christ is the one who died. More than that, he was raised. He who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Through him who loves us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. When we talk about your union with Christ, you can look back at your past. And you can rest eternally secure because of what God in Christ has done for you. But it's not just your past where your union matters. As we look to the future, it also matters for that as well. Verse 4, when Christ who is your life appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Here we see that our lives are inseparably tied to the person of Jesus. It means that our future is tied to his future as well. Paul's words here echo Philippians chapter 3. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. As sure as Christ's return 
is the confidence that you can have in your own resurrection and glory. And so the implication of all that Paul is saying here, as he looks back at our union with Christ, as he looks forward to the future of our union with Christ, he's simply saying, so why wouldn't you seek the things of Christ? Why wouldn't you seek the things above? Why wouldn't you set your mind on the things above? Why wouldn't you set your mind on the things of Christ and of his rule and reign? Christ is your life. That's what Paul writes here. Not just Christ is a big part of your life. Not just, well, Christ is a part of your life and you need to keep trying better. Christ is your life. In your union with Christ and your identity found in Him, this is true. No matter how much you sin, no matter how much you fall, no matter how much you stumble and, and drag and kick and moan on the path of sanctification, Christ is your life. So live into that truth. Dwell on your union with Him. Focus on Christ. Set your mind and your heart on Christ. And if you do that, the trajectory of your life can shift. Your interests will become more like Christ's interests your pursuits will become more like Christ's pursuits. Your outlook on life will become more like Christ's outlook on life. The conclusion is inescapable. In your union with Christ, you have died, and now you live, and you live in Him. So as we close this morning, I just want to give us one final thought. And it's this, a constant awareness of your union with Christ transforms the way you live. A constant awareness of your union with Christ transforms the way you live. As you dwell on Christ, as you dwell on his kingdom, as you set your mind and set your heart on the things above, the way you live will be transformed. Years ago, there was a psychological study done on the mental and emotional health of seminary students. They showed that, the study showed that students who faithfully spent time in Scripture on a near daily basis for three years or longer were statistically healthier and happier than those who did not. There is a connection between the trajectory of our lives, the fruit of our lives, and the object of your mind's attention. Will you set your mind on the things above? Will you set your mind on Christ and his reign? Will you dwell on Christ? Let's pray. God, we confess as we uh, read this passage, it is so easy to understand and yet so difficult to live out.
In a culture that is so busy and in hearts that are prone to wander, it is so easy to turn our affections elsewhere. To dwell on things that seem more tangible to us. God, be gracious to us. Help us to turn our hearts, our minds, our lives to you. To be constantly aware of your presence. To be constantly aware of your reign. To be constantly aware that you, even now, are seated on the throne. Help us, God. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.